Professor Piran White from the Closing the Gap Network here in York, uh, who's just given a really brilliant talk on green and blue space and mental health. Um, and I guess for us living in the UK, we think of green and blue space as something that we need for good mental well-being. Um, but actually in your talk, I mean, obviously that's the case, but actually in your talk you also spoke about um, some of the kind of issues around climate change and environmental changes that can have very negative impacts on our mental well-being. Do you want to tell us a bit about those in the UK and elsewhere? Yes, so one of, one of the main impacts of climate change is in terms of the uh, extreme events, so things like droughts and particularly in the UK, the focus is focusing on flooding and the impacts of flooding, both coastal and inland flooding. Um, and all the data, the global data, suggests that with climate change, that extreme events such as flooding and droughts are likely to increase in terms of their, their frequency and their severity. And we're starting to see that in the UK in terms of um, those events, but also we're starting to now get some data on the impacts of those events on people's mental health as well, which shows that the, the impact of these can, can actually be quite severe and potentially quite long-lasting. So you cited a 2019 study that you've done of the floods in York Tell us a bit about that. Uh, yes, so we um, analysed uh, data from um, across England, um, looked at uh, 7,000 people and found uh, associations between exposure to flooding and um, other potential risk factors for health like misuse of alcohol and, and drugs and uh, um, poorer housing conditions and so on in terms of the mental health impacts. What's quite interesting when we look at that study is that um, the exposure to flooding and, and flooding itself actually doesn't affect um, uh, people with um, poor socioeconomic conditions more frequently. And it's actually, there's no real pattern. This is probably because when we look at the floods that have occurred in this country, often you get, in some areas, you get bigger houses, essentially more expensive houses closer to rivers because that's a desirable place to live. But the difference is that for, for the wealthier people, they can, they can cope better with the flooding so they can essentially move out possibly go to another another home go and live with relatives for, for people who um, are less fortunate and and have um, poorer socioeconomic conditions um, and pe maybe people with with mental health conditions and so on this is mu much more of a kind of uh, threat in terms of and, and they, they're much more vulnerable to these impacts so then they're, they're kind of stuck and they have to live with these impacts so so although the actual flood hazard doesn't show these these kinds of inequalities the impacts of it does very strongly and the same is true in um, other parts of the world so so one of my other roles as well as working with closing the gap is working with the York Interdisciplinary Global Development Centre uh, where we work throughout the world in um, South Asia throughout Africa and, and Latin America and there we see the same the same sorts of patterns so it's the people who are most vulnerable and particularly people who are really closely connected to the environment for their for their livelihoods they're, they're the ones who feel the real brunt of these of these extreme events because because they lack the capacity to deal with them adequately Looking on Twitter, the hashtags that were trending today were uh, mental, World Mental Health Day, but also Extinction Rebellion. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think we need to do in terms of environmental changes to actually have a, an environment that is beneficial for our well-being? Um, well, I, th I think certainly within the UK, we, we have the knowledge of what we need to do, and a, a lot of it is about um, better land planning and land use. And we there's... Although we see 
you know, lots of good policy developments, say, at the national level with the government um, adopting climate emergency and um, the white government white paper on natural environment illustrating strong links to health, where um, things are actually implemented in local authority level, say, in, in many local authorities is still quite a strong disconnect between the different sectors. And and what a lot of the discussions that we've, we've had today have, have shown is that um, things like basic things like accessibility and, and transport links and, and infrastructure are really important to ensure that, that people can access health services that, that are provided. Um, and it's that linking together across sectors, I think, holds the key to, to you know, making a difference. Um, and globally, I think we're only starting to understand really that the real health impacts, both physical and mental, of, of climate change and, and the biodiversity crisis. And probably the biodiversity crisis has been overlooked in terms of its links, links to health. But, but some of the work that, that we've been doing in, in Latin America, for example, and other work people are doing is, are starting to show that those links are much stronger, especially where people are depending on the biodiversity for their, their well-being and, and livelihoods effectively. And what about where we have good green and blue space? I'm thinking, you know, I live in Bristol. I'm thinking about what health professionals can do to make more use of it as a as a tool in their armory with people who have mental health difficulties. Um, so I think there's there's a potential to to bring green and blue space better into um, care and social prescribing, and not not just in terms of kind of reactive treatments, but also preventive measures, um, and. I think there's quite a lot of knowledge around this, but I think that um, in terms of um, clinicians and so on, so, some some people are, are very open to these kinds of new approaches, but but there's there's less evidence that that these are effective and how and how best they should be carried out because a lot of the um, benefits are gained in different indirect ways, for example, from social interaction and so on. So often putting something in place requires um, cooperation between different types of bodies. Different, it might be not. It might be um, sort of non-government organisations in, in the health field working with wildlife trusts and so on in a coordinated way. And so although there's often a willingness from all these different organisations actually getting something implemented and making it sustainable in terms of giving it a long-term future rather than just a short-term intervention is quite a challenge. And I think it requires different sort of patterns of investment and a recognition that you know you, you do need to invest in different ways than have been traditionally done. And it's in this being able to invest more in these kind of preventive mechanisms and also making these green spaces more accessible. So you say we need more evidence. What kind of evidence do you think we need for commissioners to actually start to fund these sorts of you know, social prescribing interventions? Um, so I think the evidence... I think the evidence that we need is ideally it would be through um, trials, controlled trials of interventions. But but when you when you look at environmental evidence in general, it tends to be um, a bit more messy than than much health evidence where you might be trying out a drug for an intervention or something like that. So I think that we need to be open to different types of forms of evidence, and there there is indications that that's been recognised in in the public health field, um, which is which is good, obviously. But then. Um, for clinicians to take this on board, I think it's another a bit of a step change in terms of what 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 they think of in terms of evidence, and also perhaps the communication of that sort of evidence because it hasn't yet got into guidelines, for example, for treatments and so on. So it doesn't get it's not accepted, and so you have to go out on the limb to prescribe something that's a bit different. So I think that is changing, um, and part of what we're doing in, in the closing the gap is kind of working 
um, with clinicians, with, with other delivery partners and so on to actually start to think about what these interventions could be like to try and build that evidence because inevitably that evidence is going to be quite patchy. And when you've got such a variety of possible interventions, you know, if I ever talk about this stuff on Twitter, I get loads of people responding, you know, ecotherapy is where it's at. No, it's equine-assisted therapy. No, it's bird therapy. No, you know, free swimming, whatever it might be. How do we prioritise the research that needs to be done? Um, so I think that the, the reason why there's many, many different types of interventions is because often they're limited by, wh- by where they are and what's available because one of the key things is the accessibility of this green and blue space. So the types of green and blue spaces you have um, will determine what kind of opportunities there are, for example. So I think there's a place for all these different types of therapies um, and some will work more for us, some people than others. So I think it comes down to also personalised planning and so on. Um, and there's more evidence that that's, that's happening in terms of treating mental health you know, in, in the health sphere. And I think it would be is a natural extension of that kind of personalised planning into thinking about where natural environments can be of benefit because greater exposure to green and blue space will not work for everyone. It will work for some people and, and it's being able to think more broadly and recognise where, where there's a role for it and, and what, what can be gained. Mm-hmm.